Buongiorno everybody and welcome! This is Identity Unlocked and I'm your host, Vittorio Bertocci. Identity Unlocked is the podcast that discusses identity specifications and trends from a developer perspective. Identity Unlocked is powered by Auth0. The season is sponsored by the OpenID Foundation. In this episode, we focus on the work of a shared signal and event working group in the OpenID Foundation, and in particular, on the continuous access evaluation protocol. Today, we are doing something new. We are welcoming two guests, Tim Capali, Digital Identity Standards Architect from Microsoft, and Atul Tulshwing Bangwali, Software Engineer from Google. They are both closely involved in the working group activities. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Victoria. All right. As it's tradition, let's start with how you ended up working in identity. Tim, let's start with you. So I have a quite an interesting path to where I am. I went to school for photojournalism and TV directing and sports directing. But during that time, I worked about half time, probably too much for being also in school as a network administrator for my college, which is a small one up in Vermont not a lot of staff. So I was able to jump in and get a lot of experience. That was right when Wi-Fi really became very widespread on like a college campus or an enterprise. So a lot to learn. I kind of quickly became the expert because I was actually the one touching it. After graduation, I went into TV for a little bit. I had been interning and working over the summer at some TV stations in Providence, directing, realized automation. And it wasn't the old school TV newsroom where there was 100 people and everyone working together, a lot more automation and all that fun stuff. So I kind of saw the writing on the wall, ended up going back to where I went to school to finish the wireless rollout, to start rolling out the value-added services to students, like being able to use their brand new Google Home or Apple TV in their dorm room, which was very challenging at the time. So stayed there for about a year and a half and then moved back to Massachusetts and worked at Brandeis University and took over. That was really my first true forte full-time into the identity space, but it was on the network identities front. So a brand new network access control has been around for years, but it had never really... It was always a kind of a miserable thing. Nobody really liked it. Um, and this was the first step in really adding role-based access and firewall policy and really dynamic identity to the network side, right? Generally, a wired port you just plug in and get on. And on the wireless side, people connected to a really insecure network and then VPN, right? It was just a terrible experience. So that's really where I dove headfirst into, at the time, it was a new product that really went into kind of this, if this, then that style policy with rich context connected to generic LDAP, Active Directory, could do single sign on all these cool, fun, not necessarily new protocols, but new to the network space. Uh, you generally didn't interact with those. So I did that for about two years, then moved on to a partner of essentially the, the company that provided this product and essentially did all of that type of work for a ton of customers around the country as the uh, essentially led their mobility and access solutions group. And then I actually went to work for the vendor, right? So I went to the dark side, stepped over and started working for the company who made those products and that my partner sold. And over the course of about five years, right before I left, I, I essentially was the identity architect for uh, the security group. And we were really working on everything from cloud-based network security, edge network access to what can really, the, the goal is this kind of edge compute and how users access the edge network with starting to get into 5G and 
federated Wi-Fi roaming. So really, my last big thing was federated Wi-Fi roaming and came to Microsoft and saw a lot of things around decentralized identity that could play into federated Wi-Fi roaming and started to leverage a lot of those technologies at Microsoft. Oh, wow. Very interesting trajectory going from TV to decentralized identity. I'm not sure if everyone would say that uh, you got in a better place, but I'll (laughs) leave it to our listeners to judge. Thank you. This was really fascinating. What about you, Atul? What's your story? Yeah, so my story is uh, rather different. I, I got interested in public key cryptography just as an academic curiosity. I was studying computer science, but it had nothing to do with the coursework I had. So I found a job in India for uh, doing some PKI-based antivirus prevention way back. And then at that time, America wouldn't export the crypto toolkit to India. And so they had to get some clearance to get me here. That's how I ended up in identity over here. And I was very interested in this notion of certificate authorities. And so, you know, I found VeriSign when it was very early. And then I joined VeriSign as one of the first few engineers there. That's where my identity journey began. So I started with working on the S-Mine standard for email, then also code signing certificates and the OCSP standard. That's where the federated identity stuff started picking up. And I was one of the first people in the Liberty Alliance standard. I was representing VeriSign. We did a lot of work there, which was then consumed into the SAML spec, the SAML 2.0 spec. And I started my own company at that time called TrustGenix. We created the notion of a federation server, which was then copied by a lot of vendors. And we also contributed to the SAML 2.0 spec. And then eventually our company was acquired by HP. And then I decided to go away from identity at that point. But that didn't last very long. I came back and I am now working on identity at Google. I'm very interested in this decentralized, federated kind of identity. Great. Thank you. This is like a very, like you have a very solid uh, classic approach as in uh, starting from uh, PKI and the good old uh, Federation, Samuel and similar. So I guess that when you say decentralized, you don't mean decentralized in the same shade of semantic that team uses as in uh, actual, like a classic decentralization rather than yeah, we're not there yet. So, yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. Thank you. I, I love how different your trajectories were. And you both landed exactly on the topic that we want to talk about today, which, again, is the working group for shared signals. So you guys choose who wants to lead. I'll just throw my questions out there, and you guys speak it in whatever way you want. So I would suggest that we start with uh, thinking about the problem that the working group is trying to solve. So what's the charter, like how this thing came to be? A couple of years back, we started thinking about how the identity landscape has changed. We were in federated identity for some time now where you have an identity provider that could be your employer who authenticates you and then you log in using that credential to a service provider, which could be like a a customer relationship management site or something like that. It was great in the browser world where you were sitting at a PC and your properties were not going to change for the duration of what was typically referred to as the federation session, which is, you know, you open your browser, you go to the website and you close your browser, right? 
Now we are in a world where these sessions so-called can last forever. People are using them from various devices that move about. Their environments can change. So I may be sitting at a private location in the corporate office or in my home. I pick up my laptop and I go to a Starbucks and now all of a sudden my access properties are different, right? How do you deal with these changing properties? So obviously you have to adjust the level of access continuously as as you go. And that's how we came up with this notion of the continuous access evaluation protocol, which was published in a blog by Google in, in February 2019. And then suddenly we talked to so many people who all said that they were thinking about the same problem. We got together and you, you know, we tried to formulate a way in which we can solve this using a publish and subscribe method, which was sort of described in blog. And then we were doing this outside the auspices of any particular standards body to begin with. But then we found out that there is a related work going on in, in the OpenID Foundation called RISC. It was about mitigating catastrophic account compromise. So let's say somebody tries to compromise a Google account, then maybe that person's Facebook account is also going to get compromised. And so we need to alert all the other providers who share the same user that there is some kind of account compromise attempt going on. So that was work which was already being done in the OpenID Foundation, which relied on similar processes, although the problem they're trying to solve is different. And so as a result, we came together, we formed the new merged group, which is the Shared Signals and Events group, which now subsumes both the risk and the CAPE efforts. Fantastic. Thank you. That's a great summary of how this stuff came to be. And so who's involved at this point? Like uh, who are the main actors that are contributing to the working group? Yeah, I could take that one. What we learned over the course of those first, let's say, two years was how many different people would be interested in getting involved here? How many different components of a network or an identity system would be involved? That's actually how I got involved when I was still working for a network infrastructure company. We saw that there was so much context out there and an identity platform only has a limited view. Weirdly, we ended up with, I was representing kind of the network infrastructure side at the time. We had traditional MFA providers, CRMs, customer relationship management. And then we had mobile app security companies, right? Not quite MDM, but those little agents that sit on top. There was all this context out there and, and all of these different companies came together with very different views, but some common goals, which really the big one was context sharing. A big piece of that context sharing is translation as well. A network session has very little in common with a federated identity session, right? They're just, they're not... The identifiers are different. The lifetime of that session are different. The credentials are drastically different. And so that was really a big piece is how do we bring that together and abstract out some of the complexity that allow an event, let's say, so an event about a session or back to a tool's coffee shop use case, that user moving from a, an enterprise campus to their house to a coffee shop. How do we provide that information in a way that each of the components can understand it? And that's really, I think, how we got such a diverse group of companies and people together to tackle this problem. Can you mention some names? Like you represent Microsoft, Atul represents Google. What other recognizable names are active in that space? Yeah, so we have SailPoint, AWS, Lookout, Target, Talus, Salesforce, Cisco. And there's more than that, but it's a pretty wide and very diverse group. It's a very diverse group for sure. It totally reflects what you were saying about how heterogeneous things are when you're trying to keep track of what happens across multiple mediums. 
So do you have uh, dependencies from other standard groups? Like you mentioned that you found a home in the OpenID Foundation, but uh, I think that there is something about OAuth as well? So the dependencies-wise, I think our primary dependencies on, on this standard called the security event tokens, right? So these are signed charts that are JSON web tokens, which are exchanged between parties to convey events, right? So it could be any kind of event, but we are specifically using it for access-related events. So that's the primary dependency is on, on the security event tokens. So you use the format that SEC defined to carry your own type of messages. Correct. correct. So it's a discrete packet, which is signed, which is sent across. So it's rather than a continuous stream, it's like these discrete tokens that get sent across. And then within the security events group in the IETF, now SETs, uh, as they're called, is a IETF standard. And within that same group now, there is a new draft being created, which is called the subject identifiers graph. So what it says is, how do you identify, how do you describe who that event is about or, or the subjects in that event? How do you describe them? That is defined in this subject identifiers draft. That is still under development, but that is, which used to be a part of the risk standard, now is moved to the IETF. And now we are depending on that, that standard. And is it already adopted uh, draft in the working group or is it uh, an individual draft? It's still at an individual state. There's some discussion going on right now. It's very close to being adopted, but it's... Yeah, I specify this because uh, the podcast lives uh, for a long time. For things that can be changing, I just want to make sure that the listeners know that things are uh, still in flux. Yeah. Now, there are some things in the specification that are specific to OAuth, but we don't think OAuth is a dependency as such on the standard. It's something that can help clarify maybe the sign-out behavior in OAuth or, you know, things like that. I see. Tim, do you want to add something? Yeah, and I think when we first started this work, right, there was a heavy focus originally on access tokens, refresh tokens, ID tokens, SAML assertions, right? That was definitely the heavy a heavy focus. And then as we started to look at all those other pieces of context, we realized a SAML assertion has no relationship to a network session. And I think the subject identifiers work really addressed the very focused identifier piece. And this work, we spent countless number of meetings over the past year trying to talk about less specific identifiers because these disparate platforms may not use a common identifier. And so that was a lot of work. And that's that was my first real Big. We had a lot of lot of debate on that topic, both inside and outside the group. And the other thing I want to mention, while it's not a dependency on another standards group, at Microsoft, we see CAPE and SSE becoming part of kind of a trifecta of specs. If you're not familiar with FastFed, FastFed is a great way to essentially easily federate systems, ideally in a one-click button. We are going to have an episode on FastFed this season. Awesome. Sweet. The other one is a skim, which is really designed to provision and deprovision users automatically, right? So traditionally, when you logged into a system, you could actually create the users in real time, but they don't necessarily have direct policy attached or direct context attached to them. And skim allows that to essentially sync from your main central identity provider down to an application. So we actually see CAPE and SSE becoming part of that triangle. Both FastFed could provision this and set up CAPE, 
And it really serves as the intermediary between skim provisioning and deprovisioning events, right? Because skim is really good at the start and really good at the end and some basic changes like groups, but it's not really, doesn't really address session control. So we really see these as really working together, hopefully in a really easy way to set up one click idea, and then providing all of that flexibility, like longer token lifetimes and things like location changes and all these, all these very session specific things. Interesting. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, they do seem to go together. Fantastic. Great. So this is a great, great intro to the topic. Now let's dig a bit deeper. And in particular, let's focus on uh, Kyp. And can we start like to see like what's inside, what it defines, how is it structured? You can think about it as one part of Cape is all about or in general shared signals, not just Cape, the shared signals and event standard, which applies equally to risk and to Cape. It defines sort of a management API of how you start and stop a stream of events between a publisher and a subscriber. The central topic within Cape is like a publisher and a subscriber. So somebody who knows something new about a user or a device or some shared state between enterprises can use an event stream between the publisher and anyone who's interested, which is a subscriber, to send those messages. And there is a management part, which is, you know, how do you set up that stream? How do you update that stream? How do you express interest in certain resources and a certain the same? That is one part. The second part is it defines sort of event types, like what are the different events that constitute updates? So take, for example, let's say a location change is a change of a property of a, a session. And so that can be conveyed as a event from one publisher to another subscriber. Then there is obviously the su- subject types that we talked about. The subject types spec in the IETF define certain subject types and the shared signals and events spec actually adds a few subject types to that, which are specific to the risk and cape use cases or in general, the shared signals use cases. So digging a bit deeper, I think I get the general intent, which is like a specific things that change in one place needs to be notified in another place. In, in practice, and you mentioned that there is a message format that the spec defined, but in practice, how does that happen? Like, do you define new endpoints, which are not in other specs? How does that happen? What's the mechanical aspect of this? The spec itself defines a sort of a metadata, which is available at a single endpoint, right? And then you can pick up that metadata and then you know where to send the request to add a subject or to remove a subject, things like that. Is it your own metadata format or did you piggyback on a discovery on OpenID or other existing metadata formats? It's our own, but it's something that is being discussed as being something that can be taken out of the SSE spec and put in the SecEvents working group in the IETF. It's called Management API is what we're trying to call it. So it's not just a format. It's also like, how do you start and stop a stream of events? Or how do you change the membership of that stream? Which means, do I want to know about this particular user or this group of users or this grouping of subjects? So like, for example, if there are two hosts, let's say, just as an example, there's Google and there's Microsoft, and Microsoft is the identity provider and Google is the service provider, then 
can Microsoft tell Google that now we are going to start sending you events about this customer that we share? Then we can expect the events to flow for all those users or belonging to that customer. So that is one aspect of it. Now, if you just open up a particular token, what you'll find is the subject type claims, like who is the event about? And then you'll find the event type itself, like what does this event signify? And then parameters that are specific to that event. So, for example, you may say there is a level of assurance change, right? So what was a session that was private can now be considered public because it is in a public setting, right? So that could be a part of a level of assurance change. Or there could be a credential change event, which is like I've changed my password. The event generates said, oh, now this user's password has changed. The service provider can say, okay, if the user's password has changed, my policy dictates that the user needs to re-log in. And so the service provider can take action based on that. Not sure I fully answered your question. No, it does. Absolutely. So let, let me try to summarize to see if I understood. So basically in the spec you have, message formats, entities that can be interested in particular changes, a way of establishing, like subscribing to particular events, particular changes, and then the endpoints that come into play in order to have event sources and event syncs, you start actually with the metadata, which is, uh, I guess, uh, how to advertise to the various potential actors or how all this stuff works. Is it a fair summary? That's a good summary, yeah. Okay, great. Fantastic. So now, just to make this a bit more uh, practical, can you think of some of the most canonical scenarios where this thing would be useful? Like some high-level scenario, which like some setup in which there are two providers and there is a user, and what might be used with Kype to model these scenarios? There's two big ones that come to mind, and I think these really were the use cases that kind of started the work. One, I think a tool alluded to it was the location change. I think prior to having something like CAPE, I think the default behavior as implementers is to just reissue a token or request a new token, right? Location, as an example, may be context that's provided in a token, but the identity provider may not necessarily have policy around location. So to mint a new token just because the location changes doesn't always make sense, right? That could be an in-session update that will be updated again when a new token is actually needed for another purpose. So moving from a trusted, even from a VPN link to you know an open coffee shop network, or probably the more realistic would be when you're on a, maybe not realistic these days, but when you're in an office and move to a coffee shop. I guess both aren't realistic right now. Our ancestors are used to go to an office and have this scenario, but in modern times, we no longer do it. Right, someday, yeah. That's a great example of, many could view that as, as wasteful to continue minting new tokens, and it could actually be intrusive to the user, depending on how that was implemented by both the IDP and the relying party. And along those lines, um, the other use case, which was really why Microsoft got involved, was like really being able to use longer tokens, but still be able to revoke a session in real time. Traditionally, Microsoft services had an hour-long access token. Services that are actually CAPE-aware can now get a 24-hour access token because we know that if the session is revoked, the client obviously has to be capable, which is a little play on the word. They will revoke the session and send the user or the device back to the identity provider. So that was a really big one. There really wasn't this concept of a real-time session revocation that could be fairly universally implemented. I see. Can you think of a practical scenario in which this thing would happen? Like say that uh, I sign in with my identity provider and then I start using uh, an app which calls web services. 
What could uh, trigger this flaw that you describe? The one that we see quite a bit these days is the user going into a portal and saying, I think something happened to one of my devices, or I think my session's compromised. That's kind of the end user scenario. You have the administrator scenario where based on, let's say, other telemetry, they think the user's compromised. They may want to force the session to be revoked across all providers and send the user back. Or it could be more of a automated flow, like a device going out of compliance, right? The device going out of compliance was actually a huge source of conversation around what does a subject mean, right? Because we need to convey this user on this device, not this device and just this user. It needs to be that combination. And so that was another very common use case because there's tons of communications that happen back and forth between, let's say, a mobile device management platform and identity provider on a regular basis, Devices are constantly coming in and going out of compliance. I see. That makes sense. Well, this sounds like a sign out in steroids. If we just have cookies, then you'd just fun out your happy sign out and you'd be fine. But here, given what you said earlier as in different artifacts, access tokens, Kerberos tickets, and friends, then a more generic mechanism works. I remember one OpenID Connect workshop some time ago, which is a scenario that I found fascinating. You tell me if it's the one that applies to you as well. Was uh, someone who has a Gmail inbox and they are using as a password recovery and Hotmail inbox. Well, these days is Outlook.com. Sorry, I'm old. The idea was that say that the user does something wrong with OneDrive and so their account gets revoked. And so now, like their Outlook.com account is revoked or disabled. And now Gmail needs to know because that user no longer has a recovery option. Is it something that a Kai would cover? Yeah, that should be possible with Cape because when the event occurs that they have to revoke access, they can notify using Cape that such an event has actually occurred. And If Gmail is one of the interested parties as a subscriber, they'll get the event and they will take appropriate action themselves. Yeah, I'm noticing that you guys are saying CAPE and I keep saying CAEP. That's because I'm Italian. (laughs) I promise I'll try to say CAPE from now on. So CAPE. Yeah, and I would just add, right? I think one of the interesting questions that we get quite a bit, even internally at some of our companies is, where is the line between what CAPE is for and what risk is for? And I think that's something... That, you, that scenario you just highlighted probably leans a little bit more into risk, right? Because we see CAPE as more of this kind of real-time messaging about kind of normal events. You know, a session revocation, while it is somewhat extreme, it, it is a regular event that would happen across a, some type of messaging fabric. But an account takeover or credential compromise, those tend to be more 911 style scenarios where risk may be appropriate. And it really just depends on the event types, right? I think that's where the line gets loosely drawn of which of the two specs defines the event type that applies. I see. So CAPE is business as usual, and risk is the nuclear option. Right. It's loose enough that if there's an event type that makes sense for your use case that's in CAPE and you treat it as 911, I mean, it really depends. I think that's the flexibility in all these different network access, VPN, SAML, OAuth, right? It's all really about the understanding of the two parties and how they relay that information. So let's be practical. Let's say that someone eventually creates an SDK that supports this stuff. Would this SDK, in your view, support both risk and CAPE? It's just like would pick what's appropriate depending on the event and similar? Or do you have two different SDKs, one for risk and the other for CAPE? 
I think from a publishing point of view, they may be different because the systems that may generate these events may be different. But from a subscribing point of view, I can see that they could be the same because you have to take overlapping actions and the resources that you're trying to protect may be the same. As a potential implementer, I implore you guys from a working group to look for opportunities that make me work less. <laughs> so if those things are both event sync and event sources, and the main change is the nature of the event, if we manage to have one single code base, I will be eternally grateful. I'm just throwing that out there. That's great. Great. Good. Thank you. I feel hurt. So <laughs> where are we on the standardization path? I think where we are right now is we've had a lot of discussion like Tim alluded to, which is we've beaten some topics to death, we believe. And so within the working group, I've now arrived at consensus uh, on like pretty much everything. And so the next step for us is to, to we are working on this branch of the spec and we want to merge it to the main repository and then invite comments from outside the working group. So people who are not active on the working group on a day-to-day basis, this might be a good time once we merge the spec into the master, that might be a good time for everyone to start commenting on it. And then we would request the committee to vote and ratify the specification after that. That's fantastic. If you have links that we can use for inviting participations, I think that's great. This is a great call to action. Do you know if there are early implementations, even if the spec is not set in stone yet? Like, is anyone playing with these already? In August, we announced that we were going into private preview. We also called it continuous access evaluation without the P. So it's a little bit confusing, but that's uh, Microsoft's implementation of the draft of CAPE. And really, the if you're familiar with Microsoft services, there's about 100 things that are part of Microsoft 365, all which could be kind of treated as independent applications in many ways. So we really needed an internal way to do this big session revocation use case, right? Like how does SharePoint Online know that this session was revoked for X, Y, and Z reason? And so that was a really good test case for us to really vet the idea of CAPE and bring feedback back to the working group. So we went through, we started implementing that about a year ago with the understanding kind of between the standards team and the engineering team that they would have to be on a track to implement the final spec. You know, it couldn't be proprietary. So that led to internal usage of CAPE very heavily, really big during COVID. At Microsoft scale, the number of tokens that are minted per day are in the billions. And being able to extend those tokens to 24 hours instead of one hour, but still have the security guarantee of a session revocation was huge, uh, especially during COVID times with the exponential increase in usage. So that was huge. We have just started talking to external parties as the spec matures a little bit, and we're starting to get feedback as a tool just mentioned. We're really starting to have those external conversations to ensure that common use cases for integrating with other large multi-tenant type companies can be met. And really, we ended up real quick, just a summary of the event types that we ended up with in CAPE that will be in the public draft are session revoked, token claims change, which an example of that would be location. We went down a path of having very, very specific events like location change. And then we realized we could just make it a little bit more generic so that you can convey any attribute that was in a token has changed, right? That makes it much more flexible and much more easy to implement. Credential change, right? I either changed a password, revoked a FIDO authenticator, very flexible again, revoked an X509 certificate, an assurance level change, right? So in one session, 
I used a strong authenticator. And in another session, I used a password, right? There may be, there was a use case where multiple services wanted to know about that. And then the device compliance change, which is your kind of your traditional mobile device management kind of boring one. <laughs> those use cases covered, we essentially had a use case document and those covered actually a significant number. I think we still have some work to do there, but, and it allowed us to start work and start talking to external parties. And another member company who uh, I don't think they're ready to announce anything, they actually have been working on some style of SDK. They're not sure when or if they're going to be able to open source it, but there's a very well-known name. So there's a lot of excitement there that they are working on it. And I think a tool you had mentioned, uh, you guys are obviously actively looking at. Yeah. So in Google, we're not using Cape internally because our internal system works differently, but we are definitely working on an implementation to interoperate with external parties to to Cape to bring the same kind of instantaneous updates that we have within Google to external parties. Fantastic. This is really good. It's great to know that uh, this thing is not just on a whiteboard, but there are actual bits being flung around. That's fantastic. We already got the call to action for people, which is to give feedback and participate in this phase now that we are close to crystallizing. So I think that we got a great overview. I'm confident that the listeners now, if they never heard about the working group or CAPE, they now understand it way more about how it works. That is clearly really important work. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for participating. We'll keep digging. And so as the spec mature, perhaps we can have another episode in which maybe we talk about actual deployments and implementations once they will, will happen. Otherwise, thanks, Tim and Atul, for your time. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Until next time. The OpenID Foundation is a proud sponsor of the Identity Unlocked podcast. Since its formation in 2007, the Foundation has committed to promoting, protecting, and advancing the OpenID community and technologies. Please consider joining the Foundation and contributing to current working groups. To learn more about the OIDF, please visit www.openid.net. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app or at identityunlocked.com. Until next time, I'm Vittorio Bertocci, and this is Identity Unlocked. Music for this podcast, composed and performed by Marcelo Wolowski. Identity Unlocked is powered by Of Zero. Copyright 2020, of Zero Incorporated, all rights reserved.